Welcome to the Insiders Insights Podcast, where we share with you the thoughts of the individuals who are working for projects that are changing the world. Welcome to Insiders Insight. Today I have Warren from Melly Games and we're going to be having a discussion on where we see the gaming industry heading in the blockchain space. But before we get to that, Warren, why don't you tell our audience a bit about your journey into crypto and how you started Melly Games? Sure. Thanks for having me, mate. Um, so I guess my journey from the very beginning, uh, begins in the video game industry. Um, I, I first, I went to film school, um, and then realized the industry was changing very rapidly. Um, so I had to do like a, a quick pivot, uh, in studies. So I decided to study video games academically. Um, you know, back then there wasn't really a lot of video games, uh, as an art or as an academic subject. Um, but I knew that this was, you know, the, the future really interactive entertainment was definitely um, the way the industry was going. So when you study film academically, uh, you really look at the way, you know, the kinetoscope or the camera was designed. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about virtual reality and things that we can compare that to, um, a lot of the video games technology. So it's really interesting to see, you know, uh, like film critics such as Andre Bazan, uh, you know, Thomas Edison and the technologies that they developed, you know, were they just trying to replicate the kind of, um, you know, surroundings that they have back then? And then were we looking at them? Um, um, you know, compared to the video game industry. Um, so what I decided to do was uh, go kind of headfirst into interactive entertainment, into luminology. Um, and then this, you know, eventually led me to looking at video games as an academic subject. Um, so even way back then, like 10 years ago, uh, you know, comparing the film industry to video games as like the next step. And then looking at virtual reality and augmented reality, you know, even 10 years ago, was still a very kind of on the forefront technology. You know, now we have things like Oculus Rift. Um, you know, we have the Steam VR system. We have HTC Vive. We've got all these companies coming out. And then now the metaverse is uh, a kind of a hot topic now. You know, I think it's worth actually delving into what is the metaverse. Um, so my journey back then when I started to look at video games as an academic subject uh, was really kind of, you know, video games were not treated as they are nowadays. It was very much like a, a kind of cop-out subject. What that means is people think I used to just play video games all day. You know, they didn't realize the amount of technical kind of, you know, leaps and, and you know, research and development we have to go through when you study video games as an academic subject. Um so I had a, a video game studio while I was at university. Uh, we won some good Microsoft awards. Uh, we went to the UK finals of the Microsoft Imagine Cup, uh, where we met some fantastic talent from across the country there. Uh, we were in the finals for the Microsoft Azure Innovation Award. We won a Barclays uh, Tech Innovation Award, uh, basically looking at gamifying uh, savings and, and kind of banking gaps for the, for the youth market. Um, you know, we, we met with several publishers, so it was really good to kind of, you know, get kind of wet our teeth in the industry that way from such quite an early age um and it was my my tutors and my professors actually that said look you know networking is key um it's all about networking um so after after i graduated um you know me and my me and my team obviously won very high prestigious award um so we really kind of cut our teeth in video games as you know first and foremost um i took you know kind of what what assets we had from the video game studio um i sold my shares to a publisher and then i moved to china actually because you know back in 2014 can, can i 15, warren can i just um rewind back a little bit sure just to um get some continu continuity 
when you were studying about video games, what exactly were you studying? Were you just studying about the game mechanics, <laughs> as in the graphics, or were you also studying about the psychology? Because you talked about gamifying banking apps, and obviously that's yeah. not going to involve high quality graphics that you need from no, a graphics no, no. card. That's more it, like it, the psychology over gaming, right? It's a good question. Nowadays, they probably teach、uh, things a lot differently,、um, but back then, I don't even think the tutors knew what they should be teaching. So a lot of it was kind of self-guided learning.、Um, I always knew that I wanted to go the development route, like alongside a producer role.、Um, there was a lot of other people that went more of the art generation role.、Um, a lot of other people went, you know, specifically the programming role. So there's kind of different aspects because within a ga- game dev team, you know, you've got all these different. Talents, but they all have to work with each other. But the thing is, you know, the artists hate the developers. The develop, like you know, the programmers. The programmers hate the producers because there's always a time budget restriction.、Um, and then you know, everyone kind of disagrees with another. But you have to make the team、uh, kind of move forward congruently. So when we were in university, everyone had their own specific role, and you just ha- had to kind of trust the team. You know that this is, you know, that they kind of have the lead on it. Um, when I was studying, it was very much self-guided learning,、uh, but we learned a little bit of each role.、Um, so, you know, ten years ago, it was everything down from you know l- how to look at a game mechanic, you know, how to develop an MVP.、Uh, we always had like a bit of a mantra,、um, which was you know we build the skateboard before we build the car. So we'd build something that just kind of moved forward a little bit, you know. Then we'd add like a lot of the aesthetics onto it. We'd flesh out the game mechanics, the narrative.、Um, different tutors obviously taught us different things. We had、um, my favorite tutor was、um, Dr. Umran Ali,、uh, and he had、uh, a PhD in kind of virtual architecture. So he was looking at 3D environments,、um, you know, from. Like military, you know, applications all the way down to you know video games. Essentially, there's all these different aspects of what makes a 3D environment. So it was the sounds of a waterfall. You know, when should you place the player into a virtual world?、Um, how do you replicate, you know, the real world into a virtual world? What kind of things that you need? We looked at the uncanny valley,、uh, which was, you know, when you make、uh, like a virtual face, there has to be a dip. Essentially, if it becomes too lifelike, people find that usually.、Uh, Uh, uneasy, so you have to make it a little less lifelike, a bit obvious that it's a fake、uh, to kind of keep players at ease. So there's lots and lots of psychology that go behind making a video game.、Um, we looked at player retention loops, you know, how to keep a player interested. We looked at Nintendo's rule of three,、um, you know, four. If you do the same action four times, it becomes too repetitive. If you do it twice, it's too easy. So three is the magic number.、Um, so there's a lot, lot, a lot of things that we look at when we study game development. So, what was the most impactful thing that you learnt during that time?、Um, the most impactful, I guess, for me, it was the industry approach because I took a lot of that into the kind of crypto era.、Um, you know, obviously, studying film, we we looked at a lot of things very academically. You know, very kind of surgically. Um, we looked at the psychology of the image on the screen.、Um, so I pulled a lot of the narrative. Uh, you know, kind of display elements from the film school right into the video game industry. But what I would say that my particular university did very well was they taught me how to navigate the industry. You know, how to network, how to approach、um, different fundraising aspects, how to speak to publishers.、Um, because a lot of the content at that time, you know, was very very new. So it, a lot of it was self guided learning. Sure, they had like kind of course KPIs, if you will.、Um, you know, they had like a certain curriculum structure. 
but there was only, I would say, probably 30% of the faculty staff were actually video game professionals. Um, others were very much 3D artists or, you know, they were very much like graphic designers, so to speak. So a lot of it was self-guided learning in terms of the video game industry. But because we learned so much about how to navigate the video game um, kind of industry space, you know, how to network, how to, you know, how to apply for jobs, how to build up your portfolio, that kind of thing. I think that was probably the most impactful for me personally. Wow, that sounds really interesting. So moving back to Melee Games, uh, moving back to what you did after you graduated, what was the next step? Sure. So I arrived in China, um, pretty much a fresh face. Um, everyone that I kind of tried to speak to in terms of networking was just like, you know, you're some random white guy. Uh, you don't know anyone. You don't have any guanxi. You don't speak Chinese. And I'm like, yeah, but I've got a little bit of money that we earn from, you know, from the game studio. And everyone's like, this is China. <laughs> you know, everyone's got money. Um, so what I decided to do was take up a role with a video game publisher. Um, there I actually met some very interesting characters. Um, the founder of the company was Jared Saigoda, who's extremely good friends with Justin Sun. Um, so Reality Squared Games, what they did was they localized foreign games for the Chinese market, and then they localized Chinese games for the foreign market. Um, so they had a very good business strategy. They had a very good network um, in terms of, you know, how to look at a commercially successful game. Because uh, previously, you know, I was kind of in the kind of purest, um, you know, video games are art, you know, let's treat video games with, you know, respect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so taking the job in the publisher really cut my teeth in, you know, we don't care if this game tells a good story. We care that this game makes money. Um, so that was really when I fell in love with monetization. Um, so I took a role with the marketing team there. Um, you know, cut my teeth in community management, which was very exciting. Um, kind of worked my way into a bit of the game design role. Um, that's when I started to work with Heroes Evolve, uh, which was, you know, I think it was, well, it was a Tencent competitor uh, and a League of Legends mobile competitor. Um, there's still millions of players worldwide. They had like, you know, $500,000 esports tournaments across Southeast Asia. Uh, so it was a very big project. Um, and we actually managed to name it, you know, all the way to conceptualizing new characters and new special moves. Um, so it was a very exciting time. Um, another interesting character that worked at Reality Squared Games uh, was my direct colleague, um, Chase Frio. Uh, Chase Frio went off to start Alto.io uh, with Gabby Frieson, who now founds uh, YGG, um, Yield Games Guild. Or Yield Guild Games, sorry. Um, so that was a very interesting time. Um, you know, I really met some very interesting characters. They really supported me as I was, you know, brand new in China. Um, I managed to go to some networking events on behalf of the company. So I, I built out my network um, with a lot of, of interesting characters in the Chinese games industry. Because, you know, what, what's worth reminding is, you know, back then, China was still very much a closed economy. Um, everything that you do in China is vastly different from what you used to do in the West. So, you know, while I was at university and even before that, I used to love to study body language, right? But when you get into China, uh, you know, the Asian kind of society is vastly different. You know, everything that you kind of were brought up knowing is just broken down when you're in China. So obviously being quite young in China, you know, it was definitely, um, definitely out of my comfort zone. Didn't really know anyone. So it was very interesting to build up that network from scratch. Um, because, you know, in the UK, I was meeting such industry veterans, um, like Maria Stukov, who heads up a lot of the, the development and uh, kind of business development work at Sony. Um, I was meeting industry veterans, uh, that built, you know, games like Broken Sword, um, you know, veterans from the Lara Cross series, uh, Tomb Raider series, 
There's a lot of uh, people. I kind of had a comfortable network in the UK. So to move to China and then everything that I learned was thrown out the window. Um, you know, it was really interesting to kind of uh, cut my teeth in that kind of aspect. Um, so then that that's essentially where... Sorry, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, I wanted to um, understand your take on the different gaming cultures of the two countries or the two regions. Yeah. Because, you know, in the West, I grew up playing on console and uh, I also grew up playing, you know, triple a games so yeah. games with a very very strong storyline so and when you come can to I just china ask, you realize did you did you play that console at home yes see in in the asian market you know there's such thing as games cafes that you know this applies in vietnam philippines indonesia mainland china the video game cafe subculture you know that doesn't exist in the west right because we can afford to have consoles and pcs at home but in asia you know people go and rent they go and pay like you know a dollar for 30 minutes at a video game cafe or even less sometimes. So there's a very, very different esports subculture within that Asian community. So I think that's definitely something worth knowing, right? In, in the West, yeah. multiplayer games have kind of risen because, you know, we can afford consoles. You know, how many kids this Christmas are going to get, you know, PS5s, for example? They stay in the room, they play with their friends online, you know, they meet some people online that they'll never meet in real life, right? For five, 10 years. There's so many stories of people having online friends for 10 years that, you know, decide to fly and meet each other. But in Asia, it's all about this internet cafe subculture, right? It's very loud. People smoke there. Um, you know, you press a button and someone brings food to you. Uh, they have showers there. It's a very, very different gaming culture, right? In Asia, it's very much like I'm going to go to the internet cafe with my friends. We're going to stay there till 3 a.m. unsupervised by adults, you know. But in the West, everything is at home because they can afford that luxury. So the video games in these internet cafes is very much what is available. Now, that's whether that's down to like a communist regime, you know, in China or Vietnam, you know, we don't allow GTA 3 because it's too violent. We don't allow, uh, you know, hentai games because there's, you know, essentially, you know, sexual content. There's a very curated list of video games of what is allowed. But in turn, it's still a very social activity in Asia. Whereas in the West, it's very much a singular activity. You know, I stay home, I order Uber Eats, I order a pizza, you know, and I'll, I'll talk to my boys on the group chat and then I'll, I'll join a multiplayer game. So I think that's one of the do biggest you, differences. Do you still see that now with the mobile gaming? Do you think mobile gaming in China has been heavily influenced by this gaming internet cafe, cafe phenomenon? I think personally, I think public transport is more common in some Asian countries, especially mainland China. Public con uh, transport is definitely more common. Um, people will play mobile games when they're on a break from work, when it's quiet, when they're at home. Um, because you need to remember that, that not many people can afford home entertainment systems, right? Whether, especially not a PC. Um, even when I worked in the publisher, a lot of people would kind of work their way up, do a lot of overtime. And instead of receiving extra pay or extra time off, they would request an equipment upgrade, right? So then what they would have is essentially a gaming computer, um, as their workstation. So then they would play a lot of games, you know, after hours at work or, um, uh, during the lunch breaks. Um, but mobile game is definitely 100% prevalent. But I would say that's more kind of between the youth market. Um, I wouldn't say like the kind of, you know, teenage to, to middle age uh, people play much mobile games. Um, it's definitely more in the youth market that I've noticed. But I've seen like 25-year-old girls play, you know, League of Legends Mobile in a nightclub in China. So it, it, it really varies. I would say it's more the mobile has replaced the consoles in the West. Um, and then kind of the, the internet subculture is definitely more of a, a teenage market, right? I think what you said about 
the your colleague basically not asking for more pay but to ask for an upgrade in equipment so that they could play computer games at work yeah that is very interesting i mean number one i guess this is one of the few industries where people can say they're doing their passion and number two it's just odd that someone would rather have an upgrade in equipment rather than more money it's interesting and it's odd i I don't know what to say about that it's it's very interesting (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, it wasn't really everyone that would request that, but I would definitely say at least 30% of like a 200 person company definitely had a a game station. Um, and that was, I mean, you need to remember that, you know, a a decent gaming PC, no matter where you are in the world, it's still going to be, you know, 750 to 1500 USD, right? Even a gaming laptop sits comfortably around a thousand dollars these days. Um, you know, depending on current market price. And obviously with the price of, GPUs rising through, um, you know, the roof because of cryptocurrency mining. Um, it's even got more expensive. So I would say that there is still a bit of disdain from kind of PC gamers to the cryptocurrency mining because a lot of people see it as, oh, they're just driving the price of my graphic cards. Um, but in, in, I can only really speak for the companies that I worked at, but it was all kind of a similar concept of, you know, a lot of people in the company would have a dedicated, um, you know, game workstation. One that was applicable for graphic designing, for video editing, but at the same time, you know, they had, they had a lot of RAM, uh, that was capable for, for video games. And even during lunch break, cause, you know, in Asia, I think one of the biggest differences between the Asian working culture and the West is the lunchtime nap, right? <laughs> Which I think was, you know, uh, that definitely surprised me when I first got over there. So what these people would do is instead of having a nap, they would play games for 45 minutes. Um, I think Overwatch, right? Everyone in the office was playing Overwatch when it first came out. And then the last 20 minutes, people would like eat very, very quickly in five minutes and have a 15 minute nap and then carry on with work straight after. And then as soon as six o'clock, 6.30 came around, boom, everyone would be on Overwatch again, right? Until 10 p.m., 11 p.m. Some people would even sleep in the office and then some people would go home and then they'd come back the next day and kind of repeat that cycle. Um, because it's, it's, it's not common to have a home entertainment system. I think that's what's worth noting about the Asian, um, kind of gaming culture, right? A lot of these Asian colleagues, they would see the office as a kind of replacement for these internet game cafes. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Uh, it's, it's so alien to me, that kind of, you know, concept of staying in the office for fun. But at the same time, it's so understandable. And it's, I guess if you're that company, you know, you're, you've got employees that are so dedicated to the industry that they're staying in the office for recreational purposes. I guess you're doing something right. Well, I think, I think it's worth noting that Asian, um, maybe I shouldn't say Asian, maybe I should say Chinese, right? It's worth noting that Chinese work culture is very much like we are one big family, right? We have one goal and we're here to complete that goal. So overtime is kind of standard, right? No, when, when your shift finishes at 6 p.m., no one leaves at 6 p.m., right? If you leave when the clock turns six, like you're kind of seen as the black sheep, right? You, you don't respect your job. You don't respect your colleagues. So it's extremely common to stay there for an extra hour or two. Um, so when you have like a lot of activities in the office, that is kind of expected, right? So when I was there and I'm like, okay, see you later guys, everyone's like, don't leave at six, right? You have to stay here for an extra 30 minutes, an hour. Um, and I was really trying to understand why, but then when you see everyone like ordering takeout together, right? And then you see this kind of social aspect and people playing games and things, it's very easy to see, you know, where the West fails on that front. Like in Italy, um, it's illegal. I think Italy, Sweden, France, Germany, there's a lot of places. It's illegal to call a colleague outside of work hours, right? Like they've made that illegal. Um, in China, like, you know, if you got a message, if you got a message at 1 a.m. from your boss, like you better reply in like two, three minutes. 
Um, you know, there's a very dedicated work culture. Um, and I think that kind of bleeds in, especially in the video games industry, where you have a lot of people growing up in these internet cafes. Because, you know, remember when uh, Counter-Strike 1.6 came out, you know, internet cafes were kind of at its peak in China, right? That's kind of the birth of esports, I would say. You know, when mainland China started to open up a lot more in the early 2000s, you know, they started to be more receptive to Western media, uh, Western TV shows, uh, Western, you know, gaming content, all this stuff. Um, and then you kind of had this birth of internet cafes because no one even had, you know, internet at the homes back then. Um, a lot of it was we go to a, an internet cafe to check email. I think it's worth noting that one of the reasons why no one in China uses email, right, is because they just surpassed that. They surpassed that way before the West. Um, they adopted email very, very fast, which is probably one of the reasons why WeChat is so integrated into society, right? When I was there, I didn't touch cash for like seven or eight months. Everything was just was just done by WeChat pay. I've seen a five-year-old girl go to the store with a smartwatch, right, and pay for some candies. And then I also saw, you know, a 75-year-old woman pay for, you know, bok choy and, and some broccoli and kind of stuff with a phone on WeChat. So the mainland Chinese kind of market and mentality is so far beyond what we see in the West. Um, but the gaming cultures in terms of this is an internet cafe, you know, video gaming is very much an in-person social activity compared to the West where it's like we just stay at home, you know, we speak to our friends online kind of thing. So there's a very big contrast, but I think both of them have, you know, kind of things worth noting for. You have to kind of design for both of those activities, which I think is a good challenge that we face today as game designers. How long were you at R Squared and did you get used to this working culture in the end? Did you find it a big positive? Um, I was there for a while. It was, it was definitely the first opportunity I had to cut my teeth in the kind of Chinese work culture, right? But also the Chinese game industry. Um, so straight after Reality Square Games, um, I think during around 2016, we were looking at, um, like kind of blockchain and NFT gaming because CryptoKitties came out. We were looking at non-fungible tokens as like the next step. And what really attracted me and some of the colleagues were, you know, I can take this game content, right? That I've paid for in one game. And then I can take that over into the next game. Um, that to me was very exciting, right? I can spend a hundred hours on Diablo. Um, and then I can take that into a Baldur's Gate game or to a Halo game or to a different franchise altogether, um, different genre, you know, different whatever. Um, that to me was very exciting. So that was when we started to look at blockchain more seriously. Um, I first came across Bitcoin in 2013, uh, when one of my game, uh, art, game 3D artists actually was discussing Bitcoin. Oh, it's just gone up to $250, all this stuff. And I honestly, I shrugged it off. I was like, it's just data. You know, it's not really going to be worth anything. But then when I was in China in like 2015, late 2015 um one of some bank in hong kong actually invested in ethereum so we were like okay we need to take this more seriously right because if these these banks have so many analysts and they have all these kind of you know very intelligent people that work for them uh that basically predict future then we should definitely um you know take it more seriously and I was under the impression that, that China was going to ban cryptocurrency because it really threatened a lot of a lot of the values that they were really enforcing. So I was like, you know, once once China starts to ban cryptocurrency, then we're definitely on the right track towards mainstream. So me and a few colleagues, we we decided like, look, you know, blockchain is definitely the future, especially blockchain video games. We need to kind of you know look at this um, as like a career move. So um, I met some other people, met some investors, uh, met some some other kind of co-founders, and we decided 
decided to launch um, a blockchain development outsource company. Um, you know, the, the idea was that a lot of these projects, because we basically came from the tech industry, right? And we knew how difficult it was to hire tech specialists. So we were looking at this new technology and we were kind of anticipating um, there's not going to be that many blockchain developers, right? And then there's not going to be that many people that specialize because, you know, if there's like a, a 40% or maybe even like 140% deficit of, you know, development graduates in all in all kind of fields of, of industry, and then you look at blockchain as like a very new, a very new technology, there's a 100% going to be a deficit. So we were like, you know, we'll hire a bunch of uh, developers that are very interested in, in blockchain. We'll give them the opportunity to grow, to train themselves. You know, we'll give them a salary, but give them a lot of research and development time, essentially. Then we could become a market leader. So that was essentially the plan. So then obviously when 2017 came around, we were in a very good position because what we were able to do was essentially white label a lot of these, you know, very basic projects and platforms like wallets, um, you know, very basic platforms that users go on and sign up. Uh, so we basically just approached a lot of these ICO projects and said, look, you guys are going to need something. We know that you don't have a development team because no one's got a development team, right? You can work with us, outsource, you know, basically your MVP, your demo products. Um, and then if you like us, you know, you can hire is a, like a very highly inflated rate because these companies were raising millions of dollars in you know less than a week like five to ten million dollars in a few days right it was crazy during that time um, and we sat there essentially as you know a, a light at the end of a tunnel because a lot of these people were more like we'll raise the funds first and then we'll worry about it later um, did you so have then, anybody uh, notable you worked with Warren uh, we, we can't say anything actually there was a lot of paperwork involved because one of the things that we offered these companies were we won't tell anyone that we work with you right you guys have 100% to say that you have a dev team you can work you know you have your own resources so we can't even to this day like we can't say what projects we worked on um oh. so yeah i mean at the time 2017 there was no projects right there was no um i mean there was no project that had its own development team like it just didn't happen everyone was more focused on raising money through icos first and then worrying about how to deliver a project later so what we would do was go to these projects and say look you know we know you guys don't have anything we know it's extremely difficult right now to even hire i mean even today in like 2021 2022 right the, the a blockchain a, a very junior blockchain developer can charge like over a hundred thousand dollars per year right the, there's that much demand for them right now so back then we were in an extremely good position um but if word got out that these projects were kind of outsourcing then it put a lot of the kind of project roadmap at risk so we were just like you know what we, we don't care about promoting ourselves you know we are the solution um so we kind of work with those companies on, on that level um i i ended up having a disagreement with the co-founder actually um the crazy backstory but then I ended up moving to Vietnam um, in around 2018. And then luckily, that was kind of the time when Sky Mavis was just taking off, right? So that Sky Mavis is obviously the the, the company behind um, Axie Infinity. So back in 2018, you know, there was a lot of people being snatched up for game development work. Blockchain was always in high demand, but back then it was video games. And as soon as people learned that I had a video game background, there was all this kind of, you know, communication and like, what did I think about this and what did I think about that? Um, and then I actually learned about DeFi trend, uh, like 2019, uh, late 2018, early 2019. Uh, we flew to Hong Kong to, to work on a project. Um, I didn't end up joining them in the end. I moved back to Vietnam and then I, I saw like a lot of the trends of, of, you know, kind of play to earn gaming. But back then it wasn't really called 
play to earn. It was just like, you know, NFT games. It was just like tokenized games, like collectible games, all this stuff. Um, so then what I decided, I ended up working with uh, a stable coin company and kind of fell in love with regulation because obviously through all the crazy stuff that I saw in China, I was like, we're going to need regulation. So back in 2019, you know, the two things that really stood out in terms of topics were, um, DeFi and regulation and then play to earn gaming. Um, so yeah, that, that was like a really interesting time. Um, and then since then, um, essentially we, I met with some other colleagues that were based in China and I was like, look, you know, there's a huge demand for video game developers in Vietnam, right? There's this game, Max Infinity, it's rapidly your growing. Was colleagues at Reality Squared? No, these were just kind of colleagues that I worked for in like a, a consultancy basis. Um, there was Jack, uh, who used to work for Vogue, Red Bull. Uh, he won a Red Dot Design Award in 2019. Um, and then through some of the investors, we actually met Samia. So one thing that was very interesting was there was a lot of companies that were looking at doing a SPAC, which is going public in the US. Um, so with the work through, through Stably, uh, the stablecoin company, um, we essentially had a lot of US regulated partners like trust companies, um, you know, like kind of like SPAC consultants, uh, IPO consultants, etc. Uh, so I spoke to Jack and said, look, you know, there's a lot of things that we could do here. But one thing that I, I'm not good at is, is the, the branding aspect, right? Um, so I really needed Jack to come on and help with a lot of this kind of, um, like rebranding the games. So when a lot of these play to earn gaming in Vietnam were, were kind of, you know, a lot of people were, were conceptualizing a lot of this play to earn games. I saw a major flaw with a lot of these companies is that none of them were, were video game designers. None of them played games, right? None of them were really focused on, um, doing it player first. It was all about the collectibles aspect. And that to me was like a really bad design flaw. So, you know, coming from uh, a background in video game development where we literally looked at video games as, you know, art, uh, looked at it from a player first perspective and then drawing on the aspects from the Chinese um, game publisher in terms of, you know, what makes a commercial game successful. These games were focused more on the commercialization, but the commercialization for the company itself, right? Not from the monetization for the players. They were looking at monetizing, you know, the assets themselves so i just saw everything as being wrong so it was just like what is going on um so we what, what i said to, to to jack back then was look you know there's a huge market here for delivering high quality games um all these games were, were saying we're going to build this this is what we have planned here's the roadmap this is what we're going to do none of them were saying this is what we have done so my argument was, look, if we build a game first and then we go out to market, um, you know, we're going to be miles ahead of a lot of these, these game companies, you know, these game five projects. So the strategy was, look, if we just acquire a game first, if we just buy a game first and then make it an NFT game, um, you know, that's going to cut down our, our development speed. But then it came down to, well, if we can just buy one game, why can't we buy 10 games, right? And then it was like, and then if we have 10 games, like, what are we going to do? We, we essentially have an economy. So we're going to be, you know, the market leader immediately. Because even Axie Infinity, we spoke to a lot of kind of scholars in, in the Philippines and in Indonesia and Vietnam. And we said, look, what are the biggest problems that you guys have? A lot of them were just like, it, get bo- it gets boring very easily. Um, scholars were kind of a new concept that they had. Um, and that was like, look, you know, I'm earning more money just by loaning out these assets, you know, than I 
am by actually playing the game. So then we saw a lot of game guilds kind of pop up globally. Um, so we managed to meet a lot of them quite early on, which obviously led um, to a lot of good relationships with Melly. But initially back then it was, look, these players are getting bored very easily. We need to give them an economy. Um, we need to give them the option to move between games. And then that kind of solved one of the biggest issues in the industry of, you know, how do you standardize the NFTs? Because there's so many networks now, you know, back in 2015, there was only like four or five that were actually viable for developers to work on. Now there's like 30, 40, right? Um, and, that, you know, you've got projects like Polkadot and Kusama, which solve, you know, these kind of parachain issues of different blockchain networks interacting with each other and working with each other. You know, I'm a big believer in Polkadot for this very reason, right? You know, back in 2017, we had projects from a compound where people live and pay rent in tokens to cinema tokens to people paying supermarket tokens, you know, all these tokenized economies, they didn't have, you know, entry and exit points, right? So how do you solve a problem of a multi-tokenized economy? So this is where Polkadot comes in. So if you look at video games and all these different video games economies, you know, how do you make all these NFTs interact with each other? Well, a lot of these game companies aren't even considering that. They're just thinking of, oh, I have this one game, right? It's going to take me two years to build, right? And even then, I think a lot of them underestimate um, how difficult it is to actually build a game. It's not as simple as just coding something. You know, when you're building a virtual world, there's so many different possibilities that you have to consider. So essentially, you know, these people are just saying, we're going to build this this one game. It's going to take us several years to develop. We have, you know, 50,000 NFT characters, assets, whatever you call it. Um, and then, you know, they're just kind of hoping the players are going to play it for, you know, years to come. But it's not going to be the case, right? I mean, a lot of games nowadays, you know, I mean, look, we have internet at our fingertips, right? We have cheat guides. We have, you know, walkthroughs for video games. You know, the average campaign for a $60 AAA studio is like less than 20 hours, right? So that's $60 for less than 20 hours of gameplay. Obviously, there's a lot of multiplayer aspects sometimes to a lot of it, but that's kind of the, you know, the kind of benchmark that we have. So if people are paying $60 for a 20-hour campaign game from a AAA studio, what makes them think that, you know, they're going to spend more than 150 hours on a play to earn game. Um, a lot of people would argue that, you know, you have these, these, you know, currencies that are repaying, um, that they kind of repay the time that these people spent. But if more people are earning money from loaning out the assets in these games already, then no one's going to be playing, right? Everyone's going to be more interested in kind of sharing the assets. I'll loan you my assets, you earn money in the game, and I'll take a percentage. That's how a lot of these game guilds, you know, operate. They take a small percentage for loaning those aspects. So we've looked at all these different problems with the industry um, for Melly Games, and we've kind of had solutions for them as we've built them in. Wow, that is <laughs> really, really interesting. Um, before we move on, why don't you tell our audience what the first game on Melly Games is going to be? So, so we, so we acquired a game called Nova Heroes, right? Um, no, we, so how we operate is we kind of swoop in to existing video game studios. Um, and we say, we want to buy your IP, right? We think your game could make uh, a very good NFT game, good play to earn game. Uh, we, we want to acquire the IP. So this usually involves some development work from the studio if they're still active. Uh, the source code for the video game, including the art assets. Sometimes it includes the, the online communities like the Twitter, um, you know, the Telegram group or, you know, whatever these guys have on Facebook page, Instagram, etc. Um, and then we integrate those with our dev tools. So a lot of these free to play games that we acquire already have a dual, like a dual economy. So players earn gold coins, but they buy diamonds, right? Cause a lot of these games are commercialized. So we're taking games that normally trigger players to spend as much money in game as possible. So we have to tweak the mechanics to, you know, we reward the 
players with in-game assets instead, which is, you know, extremely interesting. But the only reason that we can do this is, so in 2017, 2018, uh, the Chinese government released a propaganda license requirement for media producers. So what this meant was all these small studios that were building games for Western markets, all these outsource studios, all these game publishers, um, they all had to have, a, 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 well, first of all, like a media license from the Chinese government, which is very difficult to get. Um, they had to go through so many loopholes. They had to change a lot of the game content before it could be released. So it just became not, it just didn't become feasible for a lot of these studios or publishers to operate anymore, right? So a lot of them had to be acquired by a larger entity like Tencent Gaming or iDreamSky or Reality Squared Games or IGG, etc. Um, so then what we essentially do is we swoop into these studios and say, look, what games do you have on your portfolio that you're not working on now? And a lot of these studios will essentially be happy to get rid of them because they can't work on them anymore. You know, but a lot of them still have like a video game uh, community online. You know, maybe the it maybe it's active, but people can't buy stuff anymore. Um, maybe you know it's very it's not bringing in much money. Maybe it only brings in like you know three to four thousand dollars a month. Um, but you know, obviously these companies they have like ten, fifteen of these games operating. So you know, it, it kind of adds up. So we come in, we buy a lot of these um, you know ex- kind of expired pre-existing mobile games or browser games, and then we integrate that with our economy. So we integrate the Melly Token ecosystem. The PCE token ecosystem. Uh, we tweak some of the game mechanics. We integrate the characters, etc. Um, and then it cuts our development time by about 85%. So that's how we're essentially going to dominate the play to earn space. So, you know, once a player joins our ecosystem, they're going to have a number of games to choose from, right? This guarantees that we get a mobile game that's built as a mobile game. You know, there is a high standard of playability there. There's a lot of player attention loops already in there. Um, the in-game content is essentially built because once we build it once, uh, we just integrate that into future games. Uh, we use a couple of tools like Spine, uh, Spine Pro animation uh, to cut down on the integration times. All of it is done back end, so the wallets and stuff, because we've built a very centralized system. Um, we don't want a player, for example, to lose their phone or lose access to their account, and then they essentially lose access to all of their assets, right? So if a player, for example, forgets their password, they can email our support team, and then they can get the password back, and that in turn will give them a lot of their assets. So, you know, we're a big believer that, you know, video games, especially play to earn games, need an aspect of centralization um, for, for player support. So Melly Games originally was Nova Heroes, right? They have a very small online community. Um, you know, it was quite well known. They had a good ranking on the App Store. Um, but what was attractive to us was it was very familiar to Act Infinity already. So that allowed us to essentially, you know, create this sense of familiarity to Axie in terms of this 3v3 battle system, right? We have PvE, we have PvP, um, we have a, a ranking system, we have a lot of in-game assets, we have a lot of on-chain assets, etc. Um, so it was really about providing a very familiar experience, you know, to this groundwork that Axie Infinity lay forward. But when we spoke to the Axie scholars and the Axie players, you know, some of the biggest challenges they had were, it's very difficult to get new players onboarded because the, the on-ramp, you know, is very confusing. Um, players get bored very, very very easily or the entry barrier to the game was too expensive so it really made a lot of sense for us to essentially create that familiar experience um the next games that we publish 
are going to be very different. We're going to be adding a lot of, you know, kind of experimental and original mechanics of play to earn. We're really going to be gamifying the DeFi aspect because, you know, say, for example, you have a, a Grab or Gojek or Uber delivery driver in Vietnam or the Philippines or or Indonesia, you know, you're trying to explain to someone with very little financial education. Okay, look, I'm going to give you two assets, right? You're going to stake those in a liquidity pool. You're going to get an LP token. Then you need to do an atomic swap. You need to deposit that into a new pool, right? And then you're going to basically yield farm that. And then you're going to do another atomic swap to switch that into a different asset. And then you're going to pull everything out within 36... These people are just going to be like, what the hell are you talking about, right? There's a lot of financial education that comes with DeFi protocols. However, you know, if you explain to someone, look, you put your game character to sleep for 30 days and we'll pay you extra melee, right? That is very understandable. That translates across different cultures, across different languages. You know, there's no financial education involved. There's no even technology education involved. You know, that is a very... Uh, a very understandable concept to a lot of people. So that's how we're going to gamify DeFi, right? We're going to take your game assets. They're going to be unusable for X amount of days. Um, and then you're going to earn extra melee tokens and we take a percentage. So that is how we're going to gamify the whole DeFi aspect, right? Um, and then we've got other game mechanics, like the next game, we're going to have like a, a dress collectible game aimed at young women. We really feel that young women are an overlooked uh, demographic in video games. I mean, over 50% of women play games, right? But if you look at a lot of characters and content, it's all about high action, you know, very male dominated uh, aesthetics and, and stuff like that. So we're really focused on, you know, kind of creating an economy for all different aspects of it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Warren. Um, before we end the podcast, I have one question from our community to you. And that question is, apart from gaming in the next year or so, what do you think is going to be the biggest wave coming to crypto? So we've had DeFi, we've had NFT, we're now experiencing gaming and metaverse. What do you think the next one is going to be? There's, there's, there's a few things, right? Uh, I think a lot of problems are going to be solved, right? We, we've got a lot of the mainstream aspect down. We've kind of proven the use case with a lot of these technologies out there. Uh, regulation is slowly coming in. So I think there's going to be a lot of problems being solved. I think ZK rollups for Ethereum are going to be a very hot topic. Um, people are going to be building a lot of stuff on layer two. I mean, there's a lot of kind of demos coming out now for layer two solutions like Arbitrum and, and Optimism. Um, these kind of, you know, layer two solutions for Ethereum, for example. Um, I think DAOs are definitely going to be a hot topic uh, as regulation comes in. Um, there has to be a lot of uh, decentralized, you know, autonomous organizations being launched, being released. Um, there's going to be a lot of admin keys that are going to be um, removed. And the, I think security is going to be another hot topic, right? The, there's so many anonymous teams and projects out there right now, and there's very little accountability, right? If you look at blockchain, I mean, one of the things that I gave in my, in my TED talk in 2018 was, you know, this blockchain and data security is going to allow us to have a very trustworthy internet. But then what we have, especially this last year, is like the rise of scams, the rise of hacks, the rise of rug pulls, because there's zero accountability, right? Um, and a lot of this is because people can just put their hands up and say, oh, it's not us, the smart contract failed, right? Or it's it's not the team, um, you know, it's essentially some random hacker that, that just took everything. Um, so I think we're going to need accountability. So I think security is going to be a hot topic for sure. Um, DAOs are definitely going to be a hot topic, a hot trend. Um, I think that might be the next kind of fundraising trend, uh, DAOs next year. Um, and ZK rollups and, and layer two solutions for Ethereum and kind of, you know, um, for kind of the, these layer one kind of upgrades. I think they're going to be a hot topic for sure. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Warren. Um, do you have any socials or any websites you want to plug? Yeah, so I think players can go, uh, they can just do a quick Google search for Melly Games. So M-E-L-I dot games is our web handle. Um, you can get us on Twitter at 0xmeli games. Um, we have a Discord group, but if someone just searches Melly Games, M-E-L-I games, uh, on Google, you should find all of our socials there. Um, I think it's worth noting that Melly Games actually comes from the Latin word, uh, Meliora, which means better in Latin. And that's exactly what we want to bring to DeFi, to video games, to blockchain, you know, to finance, to a lot of these aspects. We really want to make things better. So I really hope that some of your audience can can come check out our games, come check out our mission statement and, and kind of jump on board in some of the social groups. That'd be great. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining Insiders Insight and we will see you all next episode. Bye guys.